Hello and welcome to Max Politics. This is Ben Max from Gotham Gazette, a publication of Citizens Union Foundation. Thanks very much for tuning in here for this episode of the show. What you're about to hear is from an event that occurred earlier today. I'm speaking here on Wednesday, June 22nd, 2022, where I interviewed the chair and CEO of the MTA, the Metropolitan Transportation Authority, Jano Lieber, about the state of the MTA and a variety of important issues related to the subways, buses, and commuter rails, and how the MTA is handling trying to attract riders back, what the goals of uh, CEO Lieber are, and a variety of other issues related to service big expansion plans, mega projects, uh, adapting for climate change, and much more. The event was hosted by Citizens Union and Citizens Union Foundation, an in-person event in Manhattan. It was part of the Civic Conversation series from Citizens Union and Citizens Union Foundation. I've had the pleasure of moderating most of those conversations over the last year or so. Last year, we had a bunch of them on Zoom. They were really good conversations. There's video up at the Citizens Union site if you want to check any of them out. Uh, We talked uh, on a while wide range of topics with a bunch of great guests, including uh, a really good last one that was on how a mayoral transition works with some uh, veterans of that process, uh, but also other ones last year uh, that were really good. This, this again, an in-person event in Manhattan with MTA chair and CEO Jano Lieber. So what you're about to hear here is uh, some introductory remarks that Lieber made, and then uh, my questions to him. And then at the very end, there's a couple audience questions that he takes uh, at the event. Really interesting conversation, a lot of interesting thoughts from Lieber on where things stand right now in terms of uh, subway and bus riderships, the big plans for some of the major projects, the capital plan, which gets at re-signaling the subway lines and a lot of other important upgrades and maintenance that are not the big mega projects like the Second Avenue subway expansion and other things. Um, I asked him a variety of interesting questions, including about whether he has other thoughts on subway expansion in the future, uh, how the MTA is adapting for the threats of climate change, and much more. Here is MTA CEO and chair of the board, Jano Lieber, with his introductory remarks, followed by our back and forth conversation. Enjoy. Thank you for having me. Thank you, Ben. Thank you, Rin. Uh, we are, I'm honored to be back here only a few short years after I was the, 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 the fundraising uh, honoree um, of, of Citizens. Yeah. There's a lot of connection. I mean, Citizens Union for me, somebody who grew up in New York, who was involved off and on with, uh, with the political world, always represented what we all want from um, our civic conversation, which is a lot of people who don't have an agenda, uh, who don't, aren't selling a product, who aren't necessarily ideological, passionate ideological warriors who are thinking about how do we have a more successful uh, municipal government and a more cohesive city and how do we plan as a team for for our city's future. So Citizens Union owns that brand and so it's a treat to be back to be back with you. Um, you know I was asked to give a little update on MTA we're obviously gonna have conversations back and forth. Um, despite what you might be expecting, I don't think it ought to be all doom and gloom. Um, we have serious issues serious challenges, especially when it comes to our budget and subway safety. Um, But there's a lot to be hopeful about. If you're a New Yorker, you've seen the city go through challenges and come back again and again. I know this group has some of that in your blood. Um, But I think there's reasons to be hopeful in part because we at the MK are attacking the big issues. And here's something that is new. One of the most significant challenges the MTA has struggled with for 117 plus years is how to make the subway system ADA accessible. It took 30 years, 30 years for us to do only 100 priority stations, more than everybody else in America, but still way short of where we want to be when we have 472 stations. But we, in the last few years, have broken the mold. We've changed things. We finished upgrades at 15 stations just since the beginning of COVID. We've got 30 plus in actual progress. 
right now, construction, procurement. We have a commitment to 70 stations in the current capital program. Think of that 30, it's like more than half of what got done in 30 years, 70 stations. Um, we made it clear that we're willing to attack this long-standing shortcoming of our system. It's becoming a bigger, bigger issue as New York ages. We need to make the system truly accessible for people who are home, not only for our disabled neighbors, but also for, for older people with mobility issues and for, not only forever, the burgeoning population of New Yorkers who are raising children here and marching around the city with strollers. So now today, we're taking the next giant leap. It's going to be announced in the next couple of hours uh, that we have come to an agreement to settle the long-standing class action lawsuits with disability advocates who have been suing the MTA for some years now. Um, and the deal, which I'll be signing off on in just a couple hours, includes a commitment to maintain the same level of investment in accessibility as we have in the current capital program. And that we're going to keep doing it. And we're binding the MTA with Governor Hochul's full support. We're binding the MTA to keep at this pace until at least 95% of the stations are outfitted with elevators and ramps and otherwise made There's no equity in New York without the MTA. People talk about equity in politics and government. The MTA is the centerpiece of that agenda. Our already fully accessible bus network and our busy, busy paratransit service, imperfect, but carrying a hell of a lot of riders. They're doing a good job of serving our disabled neighbors, but they're not enough. The subway system is the crown jewel of New York City mass transit. It's the, by far the biggest system that's kind in the Americas, and it has to be accessible to everyone. So today, we're making that commitment. I want to recognize Kodal Royo, who's the MTA's Chief Accessibility Officer. Here, along with the new General Counsel of the MTA, Paige Graves, and Tim Mulligan, who's one of the leaders of our capital program, have been working on this many months since, almost since I took the chair, it was the commitment that we decided to make to try to get this behind us. And it is an incredible milestone. Thank you, too, for what you did. So there's another monster issue that others have shied away from that we're taking on, again, with Governor Hochul's strong support, congestion pricing. We all know that we'll, thank you. Um, we all know that we'll never be able to achieve our climate or air quality goals or to truly prioritize street space for the types of vehicles that we must have to have a function in the city. Buses, paratransit vehicles, police, fire, and sanitation. We need those to be prioritized in the use of our street space. And we can't do it until we have a system that disincentivizes private single occupancy vehicles from clogging up the central businesses. So now, despite it being an election year, we're pushing forward on congestion pricing. We're working through the issues that we have with USDOT. They're technical, they're complicated, they're somewhat bureaucratic, but we are getting through them. And we're going to get it done. I'm planning for implementation next year. A third big issue, modernizing, expanding our aging subway system. Historically, we to capital programs necessarily focused principally on state of good repair, how to, how to put the Humpty Dumpty back together and come to this work with Bob Pyle uh, all those years, there's a lot of that. But the historic 2020 to 2024 plan, which we're in the middle of, we lost a year to COVID, but we're in the middle of it, is not only 50% larger than all the prior capital programs, but it includes long delayed initiatives like installing modern signals, so our subway system can run more trains safely, closer together, and transitioning to zero emissions, all electric bus fleet, and again, that five plus billion dollar investment in ADA accessible, unprecedented, transformative investments. 
Not to mention that the capital program also makes room for mega projects like Metro North Penn Access, which will transform the existing Amtrak rail line, which runs from Penn Station up to New Haven and on to Boston, into a commuter railroad line so that everybody in the East Bronx who's isolated from the mass transit system, Co-op City, Parchester, Parsonville, has actually access to mass transit system. If you're in Co-op City, you're taking an express bus that may take an hour and a quarter to get you a job at the time. You have no access to what might be your most convenient job in uh, uh, White Plains or even uh, in Connecticut. This will change that. So it's going to connect those Bronx neighborhoods to jobs, education, and opportunity all over the region. We're also prioritizing buses. We, I mentioned that our push, is, our push is underway to get to zero emissions fleet, but just as important, we're redrawing the, service, the, the route map, the service map. Do you know that a lot of routes in New York still go to trolley barns that ceased to exist 100 years ago? I mean, literally, we've, taken, we've been sitting on the same bus system forever. And now we're taking the initiative to redraw the bus system, borough by borough, create faster routes with better connections. It's no secret that buses, as I said yesterday in the Bronx, are the true engines of equity. The only mass transit available in a lot of neighborhoods, especially in Queens, which because of history has less subway service than, than some of the other pros. And we have to make sure that buses get people where they're going, whether they're getting to a subway or a commuter rail line, get to a job or a school or just to move around the city. They have to be. I've set this incredibly high goal. Buses have to be faster than walking. Can we agree on that? That's our goal for MCA buses. It's not, I mean, if you're following the bus on cross town on some routes, not the 14th Street where we have a true busway, but in other places where there, are, there aren't bus lanes, or even worse, where the bus lanes are blocked by delivery vehicles and individuals. I don't want to call out, I would never call out companies individually like Fresh Direct or, uh, or UPS, but you know, we have to disincentivize, I should talk to the mayor about it, we have to disincentivize some of these companies who are now, who have built into their business model that they're going to pay a million dollars worth of tickets every year for blocking the bus ramp. We've got to get out And the mayor, um, has committed to 150 miles of bus lanes in his first term. Now, just when when when, when I, I knew the, the prior DOT commissioner, a guy named Hank Gutman, um, and together we made a commitment that we're going to up the number of bus lanes and we're going to do at least 20 miles a year. That adds up to 80 in four years. So that gives you a scale of the commitment that this mayor and this administration made. But our redesigned routes can only do so much without camera enforcement of the bus lanes. So we're working closely with the city. Amazing. MTA and the city working together. Uh, and look, we're working with the legislature to deliver on that, that front as well. Uh, we have 900 more buses that are getting equipped in the coming year with cameras so they can take pictures of those unnamed delivery vehicles blocking the bus lane. Um, and the, the reason we think this should work is that the evidence so far is that if you get a ticket, only 25% of people drivers getting a ticket will get a second one. And something that's even less than that, like 20%. And then only 8 or 9% get a third ticket. So bus lane camera enforcement works, and we got to do more. So, but everything comes back to the biggest priority, which is getting the ridership back. We're an $18 billion business that's lost 40% of our customers. Our trajectory has been leveling off a bit lately, but we continue to break pandemic records regularly. Last Tuesday, Metro North and Long Island Railroad both had their highest percentage uh, ridership pre-COVID ever, together serving 365,000 riders. And that was just days after Long Island Railroad reported its strongest weekend total ever, even including pre-COVID. 
Our latest hire in the subway, which is our most closely watched yardstick by all of you and everybody, is 3.6 million. Also, we got a million three on the buses, 25,000 on accessory, which is 86% of pre-COVID. Good sign that our our, our accessory and paratransit customers are moving around the city comfortably, because that includes a lot of vulnerable folks. So we've come a long way from the dark days of the, of the spring of 2020, when ridership is down 90% across the board. And we take some credit for this because we have had this aggressive program of fair discount. You've all probably seen Lucky 13 being advertised in the public space. The automatic weekly, when you use your Omni and hit 12 rides, everything after that is free. We've done a lot of discounting to try to bring back customers on the commuter railroads. And as I suggested with the, the stats just now, it actually seems to be working as well. Um, However, we're still left with a massive, and here is really where we're all going to need to team up. We're still left with a massive COVID cost, $2 to $3 billion hole in our operating budget that we are going to need our partners in government to address. I'm confident that they will. Uh, we've had great leadership in Albany on transit issues. But I know the MTA board has a statutory and a fiduciary obligation to uh, adopt a balanced budget. And we not want that board to be forced to use their last resort options to get there. Service cuts, fair cuts, layoffs. We need a new financial plan and we need all the need to get us there. Because we have to, you know, in order to bring the economy back to life and achieve our equity goals, we do, we cannot compromise with, we have to have reliable, frequent service. We have twice the density of Boston and Chicago, nine times the density of Phoenix and Houston and other Sunbelt cities. We can only do our New York thing if we have great mass transit. So for the MTA to deliver, the bottom line is we need a new financial model that recognizes that public transit is an essential service equivalent to police fire and sanitation full stop. It's not a business that should be dependent on user fees. That's the switch that we need leadership in this state and elsewhere in the So with that, let me open up to questions and join them on the welcome card. Thank you, uh, Jano, for those remarks. So I want to follow up on a number of things that you said, but let's zoom way out first. Uh, last summer, change in the governor's office, yeah. your acting MTA chair and CEO, right. Governor Hochul's coming in, she's making a lot of personnel decisions. Did you have to make your case to her to keep you and, re and nominate you? And if so, what, what did that sound like? What is the, the sort of big picture, Jano Lieber, leadership of the MTA vision that you would pitch to a governor or, or anybody else who you're approaching as a steward and investor in the, in the MTA? How about last man standing? <laughs> um, um, no, I mean, seriously, this, this is an easy conversation. I, I mean, the, Governor Huckle and I knew each other a little bit because she had obviously represented the state in a lot of different you know, ceremonial settings and events and so on, so we knew each other a little. Um, and it was a very quick, you know, positive uh, building teamwork. I, you know, I just briefed her on what we were in the middle of, how we were getting through COVID, what the major, you know, issues and challenges were, and we kind of got to work. And she assured me very early on that, you know, I was going to have a little less, uh, uh, you know, direction from uh, Albany than interference, I'll say. Yeah, and then, then, then might have otherwise been the case. But it was it was quick, it was easy. I've known you know members of her team, many of them for many years, so it was it was kind of a smooth smooth transition. And she has been great. I mean she supported us in everything that we are doing from you know from the get-go. So there, it really has not been complicated. Um, and uh, and she had put forward a really aggressive program in her budget. I just want to call out, you know, we 
you know, everything gets lost in the sauce when you know there's so much happening in the legislative session. But we were only able to keep the fare at the same level because the governor's budget included hundreds of millions of dollars for uh, MTA operating. Now, with the way that the financing of the MTA has developed with ridership coming back a little more slowly than had been expected in the pre previous projections. We're redoing that, and that's why I'm saying that I need Albany to focus on that issue anew, maybe next year. Let's come back to that in a second. So if you're leading the MTA for another five years, 10 years, what do you want the General Lieber legacy to be? What is, what is the, you know, is it is it that it's a world-class uh, transit system that is really on the level of cities around the world that have mostly over, you know, decades outpaced us, or what is it? Okay, first of all, I, 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 I'm absolutely not conceding that we're, you know, way behind the rest of the world. I mean, the, listen, for the, if you compare not just the, the, the caliber and frequency of service and the breadth of the system in terms of what it covers, the numbers of stations, we have so many more stations than peers. We cover so much more territory. We have so many more rail cars. Um, and we have a fare that's really affordable. Do not, I mean, some uh, everybody fetches about the fare. We're all New Yorkers, right? Um, but two seventy-five compared to what it costs in London. Um, buck and buck thirty-seven if you're over a certain age. I talked to a couple folks here this morning about it. That, that is a great value. It is one of the things that makes New York affordable. New York is expensive in so many ways, but for a lot of people, the fact that you don't have to own an automobile at ten plus thousand dollars a year is really a huge affordability positive. And our system, and I'm very proud of the fact that our system is, you know, part of that affordability uh, calculus for, for lots of folks. So, you know, our, I don't think our system is less than world class. Listen, it's old. It needs a ton of investment, but if we bring it into state of good repair, we have you know frequent and reliable service. If it is, um, and, and we and continue to make some of these investments, signaling, ADA accessibility, transition to a zero emissions bus fleet. Uh, in addition to being an accessible bus fleet, and the big projects, which are equity projects that include lots of people who are outside the mass transit system's footprint right now, Second Avenue Subway. I mean, Citizens Union is a, an old organization, so you probably have some debates from the time when they tore down the Second and Third Avenue L and promised a Second Avenue Subway in the 40s. In the 1940s, that's how long those people in that, you know, economically disadvantaged part of New York have been promised a subway. That project that I mentioned in the East Bronx, those people are off the subway and the commuter rail grid. So, you know, if we get those things done, and God willing, fix Penn Station, which is one of my personal life goals, um, I think we'll have a lot to be proud of. And uh, also on the list of mega projects is the is is much earlier in, in development the Interborough Express, which would be depending on what it winds up looking like, yeah. something of a, a major extension of uh, rail service in New York City. Is there another big uh, pet project of your own that is is not yet on the list that you would love to do, or is? Um, more subway extension anywhere on your agenda? You know, big picture here, and then we'll come yeah, to I, listen, I, I, the Yeah, listen, the way we're doing capital program planning at, um, at the MTA now, I think, is much more uh, scientific and uh, substantive. Um, what we're doing is we're analyzing the whole system using what they call EAM, Enterprise Asset Management, to see what parts of the system need investment most urgently, which are most critical to service. But we also, that's for the existing system, but we also are evaluating neutrally the big projects that are candidates. And we all hear about them. I mean, there are, you know, there are projects on Long Island where people are passionate, they want to be, have the, you know, their line electrified. There's just all kinds of ideas about big projects. So we're doing that in a more neutral way. So the ones that we have on the board that are we know are coming are, you know, fixing existing pen. Moynihan is great. We love our Amtrak friends. State of New York bought them a new home. 
They left us in charge of the old home, which is dumb, and we need to fix it for New Yorkers. Because that New Yorkers aren't going to a new expansion of Penn, and they're not going to to Moynihan. They're in, stuck in existing Penn Station, so we got to fix that. The Interboro Express is interesting, not just because it it extends the reach of the subway system, but it connects a lot of people who don't have, who are not on subways, to the whole system. By, by going north-south, and most of the lines go east-west to Manhattan. And it deals with the new patterns of travel, which uh, include much more Brooklyn to Queens uh, uh, trips. There are more people who work in Brooklyn and Queens uh, and, and go inside between those boroughs then there are people who travel across the East River in Manhattan. Who would have thought that? we got to deal with that pattern of travel, and that's why the governor's Interboro Express idea, which uses an existing rail line, which is sitting there almost untouched, um, is a great idea. That project, knowing that's on the board, is subway extension in Queens, in Brooklyn, on your agenda in any way? Yeah, I mean, there's some other good ideas. I mean, people have been talking about Utica Avenue for a while. You know, I would say, broadly speaking, we're going to analyze these projects neutrally, but part of it is has to be connected to our vision collectively for how do we develop the city. You know, the biggest threat to New York, in my view, is not, you know, I'm optimistic about safety, maybe because I grew up in the 70s and 80s um, and saw, you know, our murder rate go down by 85%. So I believe that you know, New York is on a good trajectory. <laughs> Biggest threat, I think, is like our lack of housing production. So I think we need to combine thinking about transit investments with where do we want to build? Where are we going to build housing and densify a little bit? So, you know, I, I, you know, in fairness, I don't think it makes sense for the MTA to start building subway lines unless the land use authorities are also willing to say we're going to build along those corridors. That, that's the connection that has to be, I think, thoughtful. You noted that ridership has returned to a significant degree, but still roughly 40% shy of pre-pandemic pre levels. What's, do you have numeric targets? Do you have goals for getting ridership back? You're at 60% now on the subways. Do you want to get to 80% by a certain date or by, a, you know, by the turn of the year? Are you hoping to be at a certain place? There's some talk that more uh, business leaders will be asking people to come back to the offices a little bit more in September after summer vacations and so forth. Any any targets? I mean, which of us doesn't have a crystal ball and which of us has the right one? I mean, we've all been learning as we go with COVID. Look, we're, we're, we're reprojecting. Like, my crystal ball doesn't matter. We're doing a reprojection with a McKinsey, which did a pretty good job the first time around for us uh, until Omicron hit, and then we sort of saw things started to flatten out. Um, we're doing an update. We're going to use that for our planning purposes. It's probably going to show that what we hoped we were going to be back in the 80% range by the end of this year, we're, we're hoping to be back more in the 70s, right? That, that, that's where our aspirations realistically are. But, you know, the, the bottom line is it's not so terrible if the Lexington Avenue subway at 8 a.m. doesn't mean you have to have a full-on body encounter with, with other New Yorkers, right? So you you, you got to have we got to look at the plus side. Every other city in the nation, we did their IT for a little extra capacity like we have right now. This isn't a terrible thing as long as we can finance it and provide service that lets New York in the maybe post-COVID era come back together. It's not the end of the world. All right, so in your introductory remarks, we need a new financial plan and Albany has to get us there. Yep. That's their responsibility, the governor, the state legislature. They need to figure out MTA financing or are you going to be offering a, a plan and ideas? It's, it's sort of, uh, uh, the word of the day is hybrid, right? So a little bit of a hybrid. I think what we're, our job is to start, you know, to help start the conversation and to inform it with data. Um, and uh, seed ideas and bring some people together who are smart uh, and, and have been through been through this and have the expertise to uh, uh, to look at this at different options. Um, so we're going to do that. But at the end of the day, the MTA has to be agnostic about you know let the legislative process play out, and that's it. so we're going to try to you know help the discussion along, make sure that after the election. 
um, you know, that, that folks who have to take up the cudgels in Albany for the new session have, have some ideas to work Nobody's going to want to raise taxes in Albany for purposes of bringing the MTA under what you call essential service. Um, what do you what do you see as as the the possibilities there? Yeah, like I said, I'm I'm not going to be um, directing or even owning any particular ideas. Look, we the capital program. I mentioned the capital program that we've got right now, which is like 55 billion, when the others were before it were in the low 30 billion dollar range, and they did it with a couple of new. Uh, you call them taxes, but fees on you know that that captured some value from internet sales and from ma the mansion tax. Nobody's you know crying in their beer about the internet sales tax and the mansion tax, and they and they did it with congestion pricing. So there was some good policy supporting it as well. So I, I, I'm confident that when folks start to dialogue about this, new ideas will emerge, and that they are ones that you know won't won't impede the, the state's economic research. And at some point, you're going to have to resume the fair increases that were that were. Yeah, I mean, Dick Dick Ravitch and and the folks who looked at the big problem in the financial crisis era, like more than ten years ago, came up with the idea that what we should be doing is having you know regular, moderately sized fair increases that basically try to keep up with inflation. We were doing that for years and years, and you know I think that hopefully we we were able to get back on that path. But right now we need to get everybody back. So, as the governor said, fair increase is not the right time for fair increase. Any sense of when that might start again? No, but you know it's going to be part of any financial plan to, to set that pattern uh, going forward. When you think about pulling people back, keep the fair where it's where it's at. Um, you talked about service reliability. Yep. What's happening to um, to rethink some of that, including rethinking some of the patterns, the ways people are getting around the city that they're using more off-peak transit or weekend ridership. Yep. How are you addressing those those changes and, and insisting on some uh, new performance? Well, I, I mean, the basics of you know figuring out how do we have a more reliable system are the same. And Rich Davies, the guy who's just come on board to lead us, who's a really experienced transit professional um, who rose up through the ranks in, in Boston to be actually secretary with oversight over the airport authority and the state DOT as well as mass transit. So Rich is starting to dig in. Uh, to to you know those questions of, of how to have uh, you know more reliable service and to, you know we, we have the ability to, to sort of increase speeds and part of it is I mean without getting too technical and to and to reduce you know sort of the inefficiencies of the system of how we turn around trains how we crew them what is our process I mean it's so you're talking about 30 seconds a minute you know, 20 seconds, there are a lot of ingredients to doing better with that. But the other piece of your question is about just, you know, how do we do a better job on nights and weekends? Because what we see is that people are riding more. It's a great sign that when people want to go somewhere, they don't have to go to the office, but when they want to go somewhere, they're using mass transit. They're using it uh, more frequently uh, than they are just for commuting time. So we want to encourage that. And that means looking at how do we provide really reliable service nights and weekends, even as we're trying to get all that capital work done. And there's definitely a tension between that because you have to do line shutdowns and, and do things that are disruptive to the system. So we're, we're going back and looking at that more closely because we want to provide more service when people have discretion. You mentioned Rich Davey, the president of New York City Transit. Yep. Are there things when he came on that you said with the subways in particular, here's what I'm going to hold you accountable for? Are there are there particular things that you really put at the top of his agenda that he said I'm going to I'm going to get these? Yeah, I mean it's the basic metrics of how you measure success in the system. It's you know it's on time performance, customer journey time, some extent platform wait time. I mean transit. You know we got a lot of transit uh, gurus in this room who understand you know that's what you want to focus on is delivering safer, better service. Part of that is overcoming the crew shortage issue, which just, developed just during, yeah, I mean, during COVID, we had, you know, we, we were actually sort of suppressing hiring even before COVID, because we had the beginnings of this 
budget deficit uh, starting to appear, um, and it caught up with us. And there was huge attrition. We didn't hire for a couple of years, and lo and behold, we were having trouble with what they call making service, putting on every run that's scheduled. We've gone a long way back. We're almost all the way back on bus operators, but, but I think by the you know, the late fall, we will be back on conductors, you know, back to full uh, staff on conductors and train operators. But, you know, thinking about how do we, um, how do we modernize our personnel system, you know, the, the, the challenge is it's civil service and you need to, like, you know, have people take tests and then they get on lists and then they wait, wait a long time and you need a system that is a little quicker to the punch than that if you're really going to make sure we have the transit workforce we need. We have to rebuild all parts of the MTA, which has lost a lot of talent. Um, that is part of what I've asked Rich to focus on, but mostly it's about you know creating a you know a, a faster bus system and a faster, more reliable subway system, and uh, you know not too much not too much complexity there. The resignaling that you mentioned yeah. part of the capital plan is is a piece of that. Um, are there any ways to make up for lost time that you mentioned that you know we lost time to COVID? Are there ways? Is resignaling seems at the sort of very uh, basis fundamentals of keeping the system running and improving it. So I assume that's a very high priority. Are there ways to make up for lost time or advance that in ways that will have a measurable impact? Nothing knocks out subway service more than when you have to put people on the track to resignal. So it is a balance between maintaining service and, and getting that. Look, the good news is what we're, we're, we're focusing on not just, you know, the, the, the impression that people have is they're going to resignal a whole lot. You're going to go, you know, from the beginning to the end. What we really need to do is to get some of the choke points which constrain throughput to focus on that for so-called CBTC, computer-based train control. So what we're doing is we're getting a little more granular, a little more surgical how we're approaching it uh, than saying, oh, we're just going to resignal whole lines. I think that approach over time may enable us to get the benefits of more train service faster, closer together, without as much as as long projects. But you know, it's still pretty complicated. We have interlockings and choke points in the system. You know, every you know, there are people here who know a lot about that. Um, that that you know have been sort of suppressing throughput and capacity for a long time, and we're starting to take a more surgical approach. Part of the pitch on congestion pricing was as a revenue generator yeah. to help fund the capital yeah. plan. With congestion pricing delayed, with COVID, um, with any other multitude of factors, how are you rethinking that capital plan? What impact is the delay on congestion pricing going to have on the capacity of that plan and the, and the time? It's a good question. Uh, uh, it's not. Um, provided we get, we keep rocking to get congestion pricing implemented in the next plus or minus year, um, so that we're building it out. Now, the, the goal has always been the schedule that we agreed to with the feds after a lot of negotiation. This is like we're in the like seventh circle of bureaucratic hell now. Um, what, what, inning, what inning are you in? Yeah, well, we're... Seventh uh, inning? Sixth, sixth inning, inning? Fifth, fifth inning. inning? I'm not seeing God bless America yet. <laughs> um, too much problems with the Fed. Um, uh, but, you know, the, the goal was always to get the federal environmental approval, which we have to get by the end of this year. That may have been delayed. I hope it's not more than a, a month or two. So the goal is still to be implementing this new system in calendar 2023. And implementation is basically you're building out this network of cameras and sensors that then speak to a back office and you know, allow you to bill people and, and, and do easy pass transactions and so on. So we're, we're, the bottom line is we're not that far off schedule and we don't need the cash for the capital program for a couple of years. Where it starts to get complicated is if it doesn't happen, and at some point I, I or we can't award contracts that are dependent on having the capital, the cash, a couple of years later. That's where it could get complicated, but we're not on a hair trigger yet. We're, we're on schedule. 
is anybody going to stop you from assuming this is a go and starting to set it up in a timely fashion where you can really try to limit the you know the, the timeline here to implementation is it something that there might be too much feedback from the federal government on all these questions you need to answer and on the process where you can't really move ahead or could you move ahead significantly in anticipation of the approval listen it gets it gets pretty technical we're, we're answering all the questions you know 400 plus questions it's not just like you know we fill out the form these are questions that go to the really technical complexities of how do you model traffic impacts in the middle of New Jersey. How, how do you assess the number of low-income cab drivers that will be put out of business because you now have congestion? Now, these are like hard technical modeling analytic stuff. So we're getting through all of it. Uh, I think the biggest issue is if there's some you know political uh, you know mega problem. But right now, remember the legislature has approved this. So what we got to do is get the federal approval. We have to get, there's a board that has to set the price, which is based on how many discounts and exemptions they give out, right? Every group of people legitimately is asking, saying, I shouldn't have to pay. My personal favorite was a note from some level of New York State judges saying we can't take mass transit because the defendants will attack us, right? That So you have to let us get free, you know, we don't have to pay the toll. Um, everybody's going to have arguments, right? And there's a board that's going to go through those and make a decision how to balance having a smaller toll with the goal of having individual groups saying, I, I'm entitled to a discount or an exemption. So that group has got to do their work starting in the fall. As the head of the MTA, yeah. do you have a message to that group about exemptions? Because I, you know, you hear you hear certain political leaders say we need as few exemptions as possible. Yeah. You're, 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 you're obviously following. Yeah, the, the most important state senator, who's the, uh, the, the chairman of the Committee of Jurisdiction over the MTA, Leroy Comrie, said, you know, no exemptions. I mean, he's right. I, I'm not going to put my finger on the thumb that much because the board has to do its work. Um, you just but, said he's right. But he said, he what, 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 obviously what Senator Comrie is sensitive to is once you start giving them out, it's hard to figure out. There are going to be a lot of good arguments. So, you know, it's going to be, it's a, it's a tough issue. We're going to have to point that board and get the work going. I'm going to ask uh, Jana Lieber a few more questions, and we're going to have a little bit of time for maybe two audience questions. This is built into our program. So um, I think some folks can just start to start to think about uh, that. Just make sure what time we have here. Yeah, uh, good. OK, uh, climate. You mentioned congestion pricing. You mentioned electrifying the, the bus fleet. How, are there other major ways that climate change and its impacts are affecting your thinking? Are there other uh, ways in which you are talking to the top officials that work under you and saying that we need to prepare differently, we need to start thinking about making certain other changes? Okay. So, you know, there, there's sort of two level question you're talking about climate and sustainability of the MTA. The first level is the basics. The MTA is the antidote to climate change, right? We are bizarrely and counterintuitively the greenest city in America by a lot because of mass transit, period. So we need to invest in mass transit and keep mass transit going as an alternative, and congestion pricing is part of that, as an alternative to you know, the emissions that come from vehicles. There's a lot of work going on on buildings, but we're the antidote to climate change. So support the MTA. The MTA is essential. Um, the, the, the other side is like, how do we react in our operation, in our configuration to climate change? We did a ton of work, and it's great work, and it's been beneficial after Sandy to protect again coastal resiliency. So we have the capacity, because the way coastal surge happens is it's much more predictable and it can be um, anticipated. We have all these systems that allow us to plug up the holes in the, in, 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 that are of subway infrastructure and stations that are at risk or because of proximity to the waterfront. There is an unbelievable project going on in the Coney Island yard, which took a lot of hit. 
Um, it is a hundred acre site. If you're out there and you go by, um, you see it's just massive. And there are like six or eight subway lines that, that go to that yard. Um, where we're putting up 40 foot walls, you know, steel walls surrounding the whole 100 acre site that have to be buried 40 feet in the ground. And on top of that, they built this huge network of bridges so all the cabling can go up high and not be subjected to water. Because the thing about coastal surge is it's salt water and it destroys infrastructure. So we have we really done a good job. I'm sure it's not perfect, but on coastal surge, we, thanks to the federal government, which invested a lot of money after Sandy, we're in decent shape. The new aspect of climate change that we're dealing with is flash flooding. The, you know, these extreme weather events which seem to be becoming more frequent. How do we respond to that? Everybody saw after Hurricane Ida, the geyser in the 23rd Street Station, or maybe it was 28th, but that was, you know, the MTA is actually really well configured to absorb massive amounts of fresh water. Fresh water doesn't kill cable. It doesn't kill uh, infrastructure the same way. So we can take all the water. We ran service a couple hours after the Hurricane Ida, three and a half inches in an hour, right? The reason we couldn't run the whole system was the sewer system of the city is not, does not have the capacity to take all the water that we're pumping out. That's where, at the end of the day, the proverbial rubber is going to have to meet the road or the water is going to have to meet the river, right? We're going to have, we need our friends in city government, the DEP, to start to figure out how to expand their sewer capacity because it really now, it's only an inch and a half in an hour that they can really process. And they still have a lot of gravity-fed systems that when the water backs up, it stops accepting additional water. So that is where we are. But we are hardening our individual stations and figuring out where the water gets in, how do we raise the curb, working with DOT, who has a lot of curbs that have gone away around the city. So there's a lot of work going on collaboratively with the city, but at the end of the day, we're gonna need a more uh, bigger capacity sub, uh, sewer system in order to deal with this type of weather events. I want to ask you about congestion pricing. You mentioned there's these hundreds of questions that the federal government has asked, many of them technical. Um, but that, that list of questions has not been made public. Is there a reason that we can't all see that? This is one of those things where I have to defer to the, the FOIL professionals. Um, you know, I, I, without apologizing or explaining it, that understandably it's been foiled. Half of the MTA press corps is sitting in the back there on the right. They, by the way, they really like the muffins. Um, um, and, you know, they foiled it. The foil professionals, we have a much better foil system than we had in the past, but they make those rulings. I don't. It has to do with, you know, sort of the legalities of which type of documents become official and public and certain you, the, I mean, I'm not. I'm not being government crowd. I'm not being shy about. You know, we're pretty very transparent. I don't, I'm not shy about talking about it, but I have to defer to that part of the organization in making that decision. You mentioned a few examples of the questions. Any other one or two that has I mean, stood the, out the, to you? The, listen, listen. The, part of the, the frustration here is all of this methodology stuff was resolved. It wasn't like we came up with it and then the Fed said no, 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 no. We, when the decision was made, when the, when the agreement was set on the schedule for this environmental process. By the way, 16-month schedule, we got 28, just so that everybody has a sense of the scale, we have 28 counties with literally, I think it's 20-odd million people who are in that footprint that you're studying as part of this study. I mean, it's a huge study, yet 16 months. The normal duration for a federal environmental review of just a conventional project is over two years. So we negotiated a much faster environmental review process with the feds than would normally be the case. But that said, what happened was we told them everything we were doing, how we were analyzing environmental justice populations and and use what income levels we were using and, and the way we were analyzing air quality and traffic impacts. And honestly, a lot of stuff that came back revisited issues that we thought were decided. And now, and everyone's, you know, again, everyone's operating in good faith, but we just can't, we just can't backtrack, you know, to debate what's the right way to study 
you know, traffic intersections in Ocean County, New Jersey, right? That's, that, that, that is a level of environmental review that we kind of agree we weren't going to do. And we're trying to get past that. The feds, in fairness, have been, you know, they, they understand that we're getting frustrated, that we're urgent, and they have been working with us. I just want to give it a chance to work, it, work itself out. You mentioned the size and scope of the capital plan, mega projects, resignaling, electrifying the bus fleet, and, and so much more. Part of the reason the capital plan is so big is because you have a lot of ambition. It's yeah. also because things are really expensive to, to do here. 2017, big New York Times expose on most expensive subway mile in the in the world. Uh, lots of examination of reasons that costs are, are uh, so exorbitant here. Has anything been done since then? Are you looking at doing anything as these projects continue or as the next phase of projects come in to try to get those costs uh, under control? Yeah, I mean, that's a, a conversation that would take a lot more time than we have right now. But I was in charge of, of the construction development operation when that Rosenthal piece came out, which is, you know, for better or worse, is kind of treated as like conventional wisdom or holy writ. I think it was wrong in many respects. I think it was, you know, the guy is very competent and the work was, you know, there was a lot of problems with the Second Avenue subway. But I don't know that they were the problem. I agree that with the diagnosis entirely. So what are, what's wrong with the MTA's construction? Dick Anderson, who ran the building Congress for many years, is here and he and I have talked about this. That the, the MTA was structuring mega projects using conventional, what they call design bid build, which means you're literally, and, and you're designing a whole project, then you bid it out, and you get a lowest price contractor, and then you spend a lot of time fighting about what the design that you handed with them was not buildable or was not efficient. That was one, one aspect. So we've gone to the new design build model, which gives the contractor responsibility for finishing the design and creating a more buildable, practical thing. So that is a huge innovation that we have embraced in mega projects. And we just, like, the project that I got to start and carry through at the MTA, a mega project, which is called Third Track on Long Island, where you're taking the, this, the Long Island Railroad Main Line, which is through this incredibly developed, fully developed part of Long Island, and it's a 10-mile stretch, and you're creating whole new capacity without without buying, without taking any residential property. So you're, you're doing something really complicated in a constrained area. We, we designed it, designed build this new way, ran the project, it's on time, it's a two plus billion dollar project, it's on time, and it gave back a hundred million dollars of its budget that it hadn't spent to, so that we could do another important mega project. This is a project which, I know it's not Long Island, you know, the, we all think that Long Island is a bunch of Dats and Dan, you know, commuters and briefcases. This is a project that makes it possible for people to commute out to Long Island because the reverse commute. I mean, it's a transformative project. It's helping to grow Long Island capacity by 40 plus percent in the morning. So this is, we, we've already proven that we can do mega projects faster, better, and cheaper. But the other things that I did is we, we changed all the crazy things in the MTA contracts that shift risk to contractors. And they, when contractors are given risk, what do they do? They charge you a ton more. Um, so we're, we changed these, some of the aspects of, of, of how the MTA was contracting. That's government, lazy government behavior in my view, um, but is giving us better prices. And we've changed how we manage jobs. I'm not gonna go into all this. The result is that we've been getting pricing in the new capital program, which is at or below estimate. It doesn't mean we're cheap, but it means we're managing jobs to budgets and schedules much more effectively. Um, and I think there are a lot of other things that can be done uh, to, to make our, 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 our project. We've got a great guy who took over from me, Jamie Torres Springer, who used to run the city's Department of Design and Construction, uh, took over at Construction Development, the MTA. Uh, I know we're out of time, but it's an area where I think we're making huge progress. Never going to be cheap. Labor is expensive, working in dense cities expensive, but we can continue to manage costs and win the public's confidence, I believe, with all the stuff that's going on and there's more to follow.
We're going to go to an audience question. Last one is as that mic gets handed out, you can find. Yeah, go ahead. Um, is there? I didn't spend time on safety because that's been discussed yeah. everywhere yeah. all the time. You're talking about that constantly, so I wanted to try to uh, talk about other things. But is there one more thing on subway safety you are in need of? Is there one more thing you're asking for from the mayor, the governor, anybody else that you you feel is essential at this point? I, you know, honestly, uh, the one thing I think is we need to get. You know, make sure that we help people who have mental health issues in the public space get into some other setting. That's the bottom line. That, that disproportionate number of, I mean, the, the, the numbers of people are, it is not, it's not hundreds of thousands of people, but they have a huge impact. I mean, the bad guys, we can stop, I think, with the policing that the mayor has set in motion. I'm not an expert on how to do it, but that is, but we, you know, there's obviously a lot of folks who are in public space, both in the subways, but all over the city, who are having mental health issues. We need to help them get into some other setting because it has a disproportionate impact on the subway and public space experience. Well, thank you for taking all my questions. We're going to go to a, an audience question. Yeah. Hi. Let me just say um, there are a lot of good things that the MTA has done recently. The second subway is a godsend for people. Um, I, I live near Union Square. It's great to get to the other side that way. Um, limited buses were great. Um, Omni is great. Um, but you talked about the bus lanes those don't work very well on the north-south avenues, at least in the back, because people are turning and blocking the intersections. So the buses are stuck behind the cars that are trying to make turns. So I would ask you how you want to deal with that. Also, I think accessibility has increased dramatically, but there's no maintenance. And like at Union Square, the escalator was down for four months. Yesterday, half the escalator was down again. So I asked you if you're going to increase maintenance. We've already talked about let, 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 let me let me get answers for you. Okay, go ahead. So, but I but I do have an answer. <laughs> uh, and and Omni's a great um, innovation, but there has to be some sort of enforcement because you're losing a lot. Hey, th thank, thanks, thanks for that. So on maintenance, okay. So I'm going to try to. So on maintenance of elevators and escalators. You know, listen. There's no, there's no question that the the old, the old stuff breaks down, and we're, you know one of the the struggles is to maintain because as soon as we train an MTA escalator or elevator maintenance professional. They get hired by the private sector. Um, it's one of the struggles that we have, but but one strategy that we've been using is that we are, um, when we build the new elevators and escalators, we are including in those procurements an obligation to maintain them, and the contractor doesn't get paid unless they maintain it at 98 plus percent level. So that has been one strategy we're using to try to force the contractors to both maintain it after it opens as well as to build it. On the turns in the bus lanes, listen, I don't want to debate this. I'm not a traffic engineer. If the turns are the issue, we will address that. I just want to get uh, trucks that are actually sitting in the bus lane and unloading their goods out of the bus lane so we can start to, to deal with that. And the third issue is fare evasion. You and I agree we cannot, we have one third fare evasion now on our buses. It's terrible. I put together a panel of a lot of different kinds of people, some law enforcement, but a lot of social justice professionals to think about how do we come up with a new model for fare evasion enforcement. Part of that is we should be redesigning the fare zone because those exit gates, which are required by fire code, have become the super highway of fare evasion. We need a different physical model in addition to a, a, you know, an enforcement and education model. One more. Don't get it. Oh my goodness, I did it. And he said, it sends a signal. The 
the tunnels in charge. Graffiti is gone, and I'm suggesting any outside dirt is the new graffiti. I think the most filthy trains that haven't been washed for days, weeks, come to the stations. It's a bit of a signal. Uh, the, the, and I know this is an expense, I understand that. But maybe sometimes to build the, uh, reestablish the respect and admiration for the system, something like that should not be just totally set aside. Somehow the buses don't seem to be in such bad shape as yet. I, I honestly, Tony, I, I, I don't know that. I, I don't experience that. I don't see it, you know, quite as much as you do. I may not be looking. I'll, I'll, I'm going to take a look at that and, and, and get back to you. We, we, we do want to convey that everything's being looked after because it is sort of part of our mission to, uh, to, to, to give that message in addition to actually doing the work. We're going to wrap it there. Thank you, Citizens Union, Citizens Union Foundation. Thank you, Janel Lieber of the MTA. Thank you all for being here.